Hello, and welcome to Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute, dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, and on this episode, we start out with a segment on C.S. Lewis. This Thursday, November 29th, is Lewis's birthday, and I thought it would be timely to revisit his legacy. Michael Ward, a British scholar and professor at Houston Baptist University, joins me to talk about Lewis and how Lewis's works continue to have lasting relevance. After that, occasional host Bruce Walker speaks with Bradley Berzer, a professor at Hillsdale College. They'll be talking about the recent passing of Stan Lee, the creator of the Marvel Universe, and they'll also be touching on the third season of Marvel's Daredevil show, now on Netflix. If you want to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, check them out in our show notes, posted every Wednesday at blog.acton.org. C.S. Lewis is known as one of the most influential writers of the 20th century. An atheist throughout his early life, he adopted theism in 1929 and converted to Christianity in 1931. His work in Christian apologetics and his contribution to children's literature through the Chronicles of Narnia series are still widely read and I think always will be. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Michael Ward. He's a senior research fellow at Blackfriars Hall, University of Oxford, and he's authored the award-winning book, Planet Narnia, The Seven Heavens in the Imagination of C.S. Lewis. And he is also the co-editor of the Cambridge Companion to C.S. Lewis. Michael, thank you for joining me on Acton's podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Caroline. So as I was browsing your bio today, I was surprised to see that your quote-unquote chief claim to fame is the fact that you appeared in a James Bond movie, um, The World is Not Enough, and you can be spotted actually handing a pair of X-ray spectacles to Bond. Um, There's a shot of you on your site next to 007 in Q. How how was it that actually you got into a James Bond film? (laughs) Well, it was actually, thanks indirectly to C.S. Lewis, because... When the film Shadowlands, the uh, movie made by Richard Attenborough about C.S. Lewis, when that was shot here in Oxford in the early 90s, I got into that as an extra. And having got into that, I then was asked to be in various other movies over the years, and the best I was ever involved with was this Bond movie, because I actually got to interact with the the main actors. Uh, And yes, James Bond couldn't have saved the world without those x-ray specs which I handed him. So I played a crucial, if very small, part in that story. Well, as much as I'd like to keep talking about the Bond films, I guess we have to actually swing back around to Lewis. I think that most people familiar with Acton or people who are religious know who C.S. Lewis is. But for those who may not know much about him or at least just know his name, what makes him so important? Well, he is sort of at least three people at once. Um, He's, yes, he's a, a Christian apologist who wrote books like Mere Christianity and the Problem of Pain. Uh, he was a, an academic who taught at Oxford and Cambridge for the whole of his career, an expert in medieval and Renaissance literature. Uh, and, but perhaps his best, his best known works are his fictional works, uh, principally his Seven Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, that, that's probably Lewis's you know, greatest claim to fame, and Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and the six books that followed it. Uh, so, as a Christian apologist, as an academic, and as a creative writer, uh, he covered the waterfront, you might say, and as a result has had a, a huge influence uh, on all sorts of different departments of life and thought. So, before we go on a conversation, I'm actually curious, so much of your work has been dedicated to Lewis and his legacy. How did you first become interested in Lewis? Like, why is he so important to you? 
I got interested in the first instance in the same way that I suspect most people do, uh, by having the Narnia books read to me by my parents when I was a young boy. Uh, and I was so interested in them that I then moved on from them to his other fiction works, like The Screwtape Letters and The Great Divorce, and then to his apologetics, like Mere Christianity. And then I did an English degree uh, at Oxford, and so I began to look at his academic writings. Um, and, you know, the more I pressed into his body of work, the more I found that it was interesting and valuable and, um, you know, it's sort of... <laughs> Without any great sort of forethought or planning, it's become my chief area of speciality. Mm -hmm. One thing I learned about Lewis recently that more people familiar with Lewis may not know is that he commented not too often, but fairly frequently on the skepticism that he had towards collectivized power in the welfare state. I also learned that he actually turned down a title offered to him by Winston Churchill, um, thinking his critics would use it to accuse him of being an anti-leftist propagandist. Do you know what was this title that was offered to him? Yes, uh, there is a letter that uh, he wrote to Winston Churchill's government in the 1950s declining an offer of, I think it was um, the title CBE, which stands for Commander of the British Empire. Uh, but I've also heard a rumor that he was offered a knighthood, though I've never seen documentary evidence for that. Uh, at any rate, he declined the offer because it came from, well, I mean, he would have declined it whichever government it came from. Um, but the reason he gave for declining it from Churchill's government was that he said there will be fools who claim and knaves who believe that having received a, a gift from a conservative government, that must show that all my re religious writings are covert anti-leftist propaganda. Mm. And he didn't want his, his Christian writings to be tarred with that brush, uh, so he declined, um, which was... I don't think a terribly uh, a costly sacrifice for him to make because he, he wasn't really interested in that kind of public recognition in any case. Uh, but it shows you how how keen he was to to play uh, a non-partisan role uh, in his religious writings. He 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 steers resolutely clear from any anything you can call party politics, which is a. Uh, Perhaps a word in season for particularly American culture at the moment, which is so very, very polarized. Yeah. Uh, the idea that there's any neutral ground or any ground which is not claimed by either the right or the left um, is getting harder and harder to maintain these days in American politics. Uh, but Lewis provides an example of someone who, who at least tried to, to steer a middle path or to steer a, a non-partisan path. Yeah, I feel as if, like you said, that would be really valuable, especially to the American political climate that we're in right now. Are there any essays by Lewis that you can recommend specifically touching on this? The nearest he, he got to it was in, in little articles like uh, Willing Slaves of the Welfare State that he wrote in the 1950s and some other short pieces like uh, Democratic Education and a Peace on Equality. All his thoughts expressed there are, are very general and um, more philosophical and political, I think it would be fair to say. I wrote a, I wrote a little article myself a, a year or two back uh, called C.S. Lewis and the Art of Disagreement, uh, which tried to you know, point out how, how deliberate he was in courting conversation with people with whom he disagreed. He liked to uh, have a good debate 
he said he was always thirsty or hungry for rational opposition. Opposition, he said, is true friendship. And he had all sorts of good, close friends um, among those with whom he disagreed about significant matters, usually religious or philosophical matters rather than political. But um, he did have some students like uh, John Lawler, who was, you know, clamantly socialist, Lawler said. But Lewis didn't let that put him off admitting Lawler to uh, study at Oxford, for instance, although Lewis himself was, was generally pretty conservative. I think you see this desire to avoid partisanship in, in a work like Mere Christianity, which is deliberately non-denominational. You know, the whole concept of Mere Christianity is, is put forward as, a, as, a, as something which all Christians could sign up to. And I think it may have sprung, in Lewis's case, this, this desire to avoid partisanship from his upbringing in Northern Ireland, which, of course, was back in his youth and is still today, to a certain extent, a very sectarian part of the world. And Lewis, being a student of the English Reformation, you know, he wrote a big fat book about the 16th century, he, he saw how religious uh, disagreements are often entangled quite irrelevantly in political and social and cultural matters. Uh, you know, he calls the history of the English Reformation a tragic farce, that, uh, you know, the theological issues at stake weren't really the, the, the uh, activating ing ingredients much of the time. Uh, they were just surrogates or excuses for, for other debates and other disagreements, other power plays. So he was very skeptical, very, very cynical, really, about uh, politics. And he, he declined to follow politics, generally. He didn't read a newspaper, for instance. And he said <laughs> his, his rather lame excuse or rather lame sort of uh, justification for that was that if anything really important happens, someone is bound to tell you. <laughs> well, he seems kind of like a, a perfect example to approaching humble but rational dialogue. Yes. I think that is true. He learnt this love of rational dialogue uh, as, a, as a young man, as a teenager, really, from his tutor, William Kirkpatrick, who loved debate and really put into Lewis a logical backbone that he might otherwise have lacked. And people said that Lewis was a bit like Dr. Johnson, you know, Dr. Samuel Johnson, the great lexicographer who was always arguing for victory. Lewis was able... In a, in a slightly unusual way, to separate uh, a person from the person's opinion. Uh, he always played the ball and not the man, as it were, when he tackled people. Um, and he never let it get personal, or almost never allowed it to get personal, because he, he was so able to compartmentalize an idea from the person who held it. That's something that we can all really learn from right now. Yes, indeed. Uh, I, I wrote that article, C.S. Lewis and the Art of Disagreement, um, in 2016, actually, just around the time of the 2016 presidential election, when people were so very, very, very uh, irate about all sorts of matters, um, and it uh, it got a lot of a lot of interest um, because he he didn't just say we should be we should be open to debate with people we disagree with and even dislike. Uh, he didn't just say it; he actually practiced it. He put it into practice. He he walked the talk. I mean, he was a little bit like Chesterton in that respect because Chesterton was always debating with people but never quarreling you know he toured the country Chesterton with uh, George Bernard Shaw they became a bit of a double act <laughs> uh, and they were they were quite good friends off stage but once they were on stage on the platform debating they they 
they didn't hold pull their punches. They they gave no quarter, and they were you know knocking each other about the head, as it were, intellectually speaking, philosophically speaking. But that didn't prevent them from from getting on as men. Now I want to circle back to our conversation relating to collectivized power. Lewis stressed the importance of actions of individuals. He said, "Quote: The art of life consists in tackling each immediate evil as we can." If Lewis was alive today, what do you think? he would have believed was the evil of our day and i this is sort of a an unfair question i suppose to ask because i do believe that the main impetus of this evil human sin it hasn't changed but i think with each coming century it does change in form what do you think lewis would have mainly tried to tackle today yes i think it's a good idea to talk about it in theological terms uh terms of sin and the heart and worship and idolatry and that kind of thing. Lewis, I think, it, in, I think it's in mere Christianity, says that if you manage to convert someone to Christianity, you have actually uh, achieved the, the, the most significantly political act possible. So many mistakes spring from false absolutization of the nation state, or indeed the individual for that matter. Although Lewis was a rugged individualist, I think he could not easily be placed in the category of radical individualist. You know, he saw the value of institutions, of local government, national government, the church, uh, academia. I mean, he, he may not have been naturally at home in, in many of those institutions, but I think he nonetheless saw their value. So uh, to answer your question about what, what he might have regarded as the, the, the greatest evil of today, I should think it's probably best linked to his book, The Abolition of Man, which is his most philosophical work and, and in some ways his most prophetic work. It was originally three philosophy lectures that he gave at the University of Durham in the 1940s. And it's, it's there that he defends the objectivity of value. And given our own very, very relativist and subjectivist, almost anarchist approach to the objectivity of value these days, uh, I think the abolition of man is showing its, its prescience more and more and more as time goes by. One of the interesting things about the abolition of man actually is that it's not an explicitly Christian argument that he makes, or even a theistic argument. It's a purely philosophical argument, which is why modern-day philosophers like John Gray here in Oxford, um, who's a, an atheist, by the way, has, has found it very, very timely and very important for our current situation. So if your listeners don't know the abolition of man, they should go out and read it immediately. It's quite a difficult book in some ways, and I had always advised my students to limber up for it by reading the first few chapters of Mere Christianity first, or indeed a little article he wrote called The Poison of Subjectivism. And that gets you into the right frame of reference before you tackle the, the more serious academic version of the argument in The Abolition of Man. Uh, but nonetheless, he, you know, even The Abolition of Man is very readable. Lewis could never write an unclear sentence if he tried. I'd like to close out with a bit of a promo for your book, Planet Narnia. When I was in college, I had the opportunity to travel for Oxford for two weeks to study a bit more about C.S. Lewis, and my class was taken to C.S. Lewis's home, The Kilns, at Headington Quarry. And while we were there, you came to give a speech about the discovery you made about the Chronicles of Narnia, Lewis's popular children's book series. And we're running short on time, but could you give our listeners a taste of that book, Planet Narnia, before we close out? Thank you, yes. Uh, Planet Narnia is uh, my argument that the Narnia books, the seven Narnia books, are based on the seven heavens, the 
seven planets of the medieval cosmos, which Lewis as a medievalist knew all about and which he described as spiritual symbols of permanent value. And when you approach the Narnia series with those seven symbols in mind, all sorts of otherwise puzzling uh, oddities and irregularities in the books suddenly sort themselves out and, and appear to be perfectly um, coherent and, and, and well-designed. Um, so this was a discovery I made when I was halfway through my PhD work. It's a kind of, it's rather like a Damascene conversion. The scales drop from your eyes when you see that Lewis was devising these chronicles according to those seven symbols. Oh, it felt like that when you were telling us about it. Yeah, it's a little bit like a, a kind of enacted parable. You suddenly see with new eyes. I once was blind, but now I see. And I think that was probably one of the reasons why Lewis kept it secret, that uh, he was wanting to, as it were, provoke his readers to go a-hunting for the inner meaning of this world. Um, as indeed he was so often in his apologetics, wanting to prompt his readers to go hunting for the inner meaning of the real world. Michael, we are unfortunately running low on time, but I want to thank you for coming on the show today. I always enjoy talking about C.S. Lewis, and I know our listeners do too. So thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you, Caroline. What does Jerusalem have to do with Washington, D.C.? How should we understand the connection between Christian faith and American liberalism? Some say it's a necessary antagonistic relationship. Others, that it's a fruitful partnership that has been orchestrated by God himself. And still others say that it's a relationship in tension, bearing both good and bad fruit. While this question has been with us since the beginning of the American political experiment, our current cultural season seems especially fraught with difficulty and division with regard to how to think about our most important identities, loyalties, and duties. With this in mind, the Faith and Democracy in America Conference will consider this question with the intent of fostering meaningful conversations about what it looks like to do justice to both God and Caesar. Join us on December 6th and 7th to hear Sam Gregg and other Acton Institute affiliates discuss Faith and Democracy in America at the Prince Conference Center in Grand Rapids. Register now at acton.org events. Hello and welcome to the cultural segment of Radio Free Acton. I am your host, Bruce Edward Walker. Today I'm talking to Professor Brad Berzer of Hillsdale College. He's also a, an avid blogger, runs two blogs, and has written many biographies that uh, are high quality and I could not recommend them more. But today we're going to talk about the recent passing of Stan Lee, the visionary behind Marvel Comics, and we're going to talk about one of the Marvel Comics-related series on Netflix, which is Daredevil. Bradley, how are you today, sir? Bruce, thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be here, great to talk to you, and uh, always proud to be a part of Acton, so this is great. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the passing of Stan Lee. I mean, it's not unanticipated that the gentleman was 95, but he truly was a, a visionary in the, in the world of comic books, uh, and some would say he was quite the literary character himself. Yeah, what a character, right? This guy who just kind of makes, uh, towards the end of his life, makes a career just for being himself, showing up in all kinds of movies, all the cameos. Uh, really interesting guy, of course, you know, never uh, very devout in his faith, but always was kind of lingering on the edge of Orthodox Judaism. And uh, I don't know how many people know this, but he had actually written some really fascinating poetry in the 60s and 70s about God. 
Uh, we mostly remember him, of course, for what he did at Marvel Comics, but he had tried for a very long time uh, to become just a mainstream writer in the 1950s and ultimately went into comics to make money uh, just so he could support his writing habits. But then, of course, his career really took off at Marvel in the late 1950s and early 60s and revolutionized so much of pop culture. So, yeah, really, really fascinating figure. I think we all, uh, you know, we've all benefited in certain ways from him, but how great that he lived as long as he did, nearly a century. So let's go to the the Marvel Universe, which... uh with several collaborators he's largely responsible for before we segue into the series Daredevil. You know, I, I'm 51, and I, I got my first comic book back in 1971, and it was DC. So I've always been much more in tune to the DC universe than I have the Marvel universe. Marvel's always been, I, I've always respected it. I was never one of those pro-DC, anti-Marvel persons. Uh, but so much of what they did, of course, in the 60s was really amazing and trying to bring popular culture and mythology together. If so many of the figures were blatantly someone like Thor, or you get someone uh, much more of a, a modern mythological character like Spider-Man, you know, they really were doing some interesting things. And it wasn't just Leah or Steve Ditko, who also just passed away just recently within the last several months. It was so important in that creation, and Jack Kirby as well. Really, those three, I think, were the major figures of Marvel in the 1960s that revolutionized so much of popular culture. But again, one of the things that I I love about this and I love about Lee is, and this is now it's becoming, I think, a little bit more normal, Bruce, but it's really hard to show virtue and goodness in popular culture without being cheesy. And I think Stan uh, Lee was really capable of doing that. And the same with Ditko and the same with Kirby as well. So they made actually virtue acceptable in a way that it wouldn't have been in a lot of Hollywood and other aspects of popular culture. So Marvel was very much an important part of that, as was DC and some of the other comics companies at the time. Right. Well, let's let's use that as our uh, entree into discussing Daredevil. Daredevil is part of the Marvel Universe, and and you, you noted uh, elsewhere that as scripted by Frank Miller, it became even more more of a, a, a great tale of morality than it, than it was previously, and a lot of that is reflected in the new Netflix series. Yeah, I, I absolutely fell in love with that series, Bruce. I, I resisted watching it for a very long time. Uh, partly, we've got six kids, and it's hard to watch anything unless the whole family can watch, and that's certainly not something I wanted the little kids to see. But I also, just because I wasn't a Marvel guy, it wasn't something I was that interested in. And I finally took the plunge earlier, uh, maybe a few months ago, and started watching. In fact, I watched season one and two right before season three came out. So I was actually able to go straight through, and I was just completely blown away. Uh, I mean, the quality, not just the storytelling, but everything that went into it, from the acting uh, to the fight scenes, which I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm like every other guy. I like a fight scene, but it's, I certainly don't watch a movie just for a fight scene unless it's spectacular. And uh, But I was just, <laughs> I, mean, I, I was really taken aback, and I thought, what a rich universe that you could have a character like this come out of it. And I I was impressed. Miller, of course, Frank Miller, you brought up 
what an enigma for so many people. You know, really makes his mark in the late 1970s, becomes involved not just with Daredevil, but makes his own story Ronin, which now is seen as a classic, but at the time it was a failure when it came out. And then, of course, wrote on Batman and, and created his own Sin City. So, yeah, really interesting figure, and I, I have a great respect for Miller. He's an iconoclast. He reminds me a lot of maybe a non-left-wing Camille Paglia, just kind of a troublemaker, but one who I think makes us all think about things better than we would have without him. Let, let's discuss the superhero, Daredevil, who isn't your run-of-the-mill superhero who just has, you know, mad powers and is flying through the air. He's he's a, a blind man, but he also has a, a, a very interesting backstory that's it's very, very sad. And the reveals that are in season three, and I, I don't want to give any of them away as spoilers, but uh, are very touching and, and very real. Yeah, Charlie Cox, that actor, just makes the character so real. And if Americans are that familiar with him, he had played St. Jose Maria Scriva in There Be Dragons. And he is actually a serious Catholic, from what I understand, which is one reason that as Matt Murdock slash Daredevil, he's able to bring so much of that conviction to the screen. But the story of Daredevil is the story of growing up poor in an Irish neighborhood, and not just Irish, but Irish mixed, black, Hispanic, uh, in Hell's Kitchen in New York. And the story of Daredevil is that Matt Murdock as a child, and this is very typical of Marvel, that DC always had kind of supernatural explanations for powers or alien explanations. Marvel often had some kind of scientific or quasi-scientific explanation, like Peter Parker being bitten by a radioactive spider. spider. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And here Daredevil is uh, this young boy in an act of charity saving another man in the middle of a street. Uh, as he does this charitable thing as a boy, he falls down and he's affected by some kind of chemical, radioactive chemical in the area that blinds him, but also heightens his other senses. So, you know, he's not invulnerable. He can, he can definitely feel a bullet. He feels pain. And uh, yet I think the way that they depicted it in the show, he's got just enough human excellence that it's not quite believable, but close enough. It's not unrealistic like Superman. I mean, there's something to it. And my sense, Bruce, and I, I suppose this is open to interpretation, but I really feel like the show has depicted him very much as a Christ-like figure. And I think not just the wounds he takes, but the kinds of actions he fights. Uh, in a piece that I wrote that isn't out yet, but I'm hoping will be out soon, I kind of compared him to a strange mix of Dirty Harry and Dorothy Day. Uh, there's that <laughs> social justice aspect, but there's also that you know, here's the holy righteousness, and I'm going to make sure that justice is served. Uh, those, and that's a hard thing to pull together. But I think that series has done it beautifully. If, I don't mean to, I don't mean to be self-promoting here. I've not done this before, um, but I've actually got a book coming out on Batman next year. And so, I, Batman is an American icon, and really the great kind of 20th century urban icon. So I've been, I've been interested in this, and to see Daredevil. Certainly, I've been looking at him through the perspective of what Batman would be like. There's a lot of similarities, of course. Uh, Batman's Catholic as well in the comics traditionally, but takes takes everything, obviously, in a very different direction and has all the money in the world. Daredevil does not have that. Obviously, he comes out of poverty and is doing his best to make his way in the world. And, and does most of his 
uh, attorney work as Matt Murdock uh, pro bono. That's right. That's right. And really promoting the poor. Yeah, in the best in the best sense, in the best way. Well, I think some of the the, the great themes in season three are uh, what friendship entails, what love for humanity entails. Do you engage with individuals if you know that that your engagement with them puts them in potential danger? He's very cognizant of that, and he also spends quite a bit of time in confession uh, to to seek absolution for what he has done and also for what he's about to do. Yes, I love that. That opening scene right, right after they show the chemical spill in the first episode where he's in confession explaining his background and the priest says, well, maybe you should get to what you need to confess. And he says, well, it's not what I've done. It's what I'm about to do. <laughs> That's such a such a great moment. And of course, they could have made that so ridiculous but they've taken it so seriously and you know they could have made that priest bad or abusive or and they didn't right they made him a really good priest uh, a serious priest a serious man a man's man i just i respect that i think in hollywood today to do that especially given all the scandals going on in the catholic church right now it would be such an easy target but they took the hard route and they made it good that that impresses me as much as anything I just am very taken with that. But yeah, I agree, Bruce. The themes of friendship and what do you expose your friends to are excellent. I have also really appreciated, and this is where I think Daredevil, at least in the way he's portrayed in this series, is meant to be like a saint. I love the way that so many things revolve around him, but they're not necessarily about him. And when he loses his faith, and not yeah, this is the opening episode of the series of the season, so not giving any spoilers away here. But when he loses his faith, it doesn't just affect him. It affects everyone around him. And they have to make up so many sacrifices for him to come back to it. That, I think, is just a, a glorious story of redemption and community and the way community really works. I also think that uh, he has two mentors, one being the priest and, and the nuns that raised him after his, his father uh, passes away. But also, and, and so he spends much of the, the show questioning his parentage. Yes, absolutely. And then, of course, he's got the, the martial arts guy. Yeah, and Stick is, you know, you know, borderline satanic. Yes, no, absolutely. And what a great, I, I can't remember that actor's name. I remember. Uh, oh, Scott Glenn. Oh, my gosh, he's good. He's from The Right Stuff <laughs> and Urban oh, Cowboy. Yes, the right, exactly. Yes, he is so good. <laughs> So, yeah, that I thought that was excellent. And, of course, the guy who plays, um, I don't remember how to pronounce his name. Is it Vincent D'Orfanio? The... Vince D'Onofrio. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. He makes evil so realistic. You know, it's not, it's not cartoonish. Man, yeah, his attempt to control everything in the way that Daredevil does not. It's just perfect. Well, let, let, let's let's wrap up. Sure. Uh, just uh, give a, a little bit of a recap, if you would please, of Daredevil season three. The the first two seasons, I think, I think were were really really fine, but I think season three just really knocked it out of the park. Yeah, you know, and obviously there's a lot of subjective views in all of this, Bruce. But for me, and I, I'm not a huge, you know, I, like I said, I try to watch when I can, and I love the art of cinema when it's done well. I'm still a huge Alfred Hitchcock fan and go back and rewatch him. And I watch a lot of other directors, but for me, as I watch season three and especially as I watched it develop and the story unfold, 
it struck me as really one of the finest things I've ever seen in my 51 years. I, I just thought there was so much in it that was just perfectly done that for me to have that kind of excellence at every moment of the show without you know, really any bad episodes or drop-offs for me, and I, I realize this is subjective, but I hadn't seen anything quite that, that I'd been that taken with, at least since the first season of Stranger Things. And before that with Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy, but I, I think it is truly, I think they've reached a level. I don't know how they could top it. And I'm sure there will be an artist out there who can, but I do think that level has been reached in the season three. And it, as I had mentioned earlier, Bruce, what I love about it so much, not just they take their time and they allow things to develop, but they never talk down to the audience ever in any way not in recaps or anything. They expect you to be intelligent and to stick with the art and to immerse yourself. But here to have Daredevil right at the beginning, Matt Murdock, for him to lose his faith, for him to wake up surrounded by the nuns and the priest, to not know exactly where he is, and then in the, the first two episodes to try and, basically he can't commit suicide because it would be a sin, but he tries very hard to have somebody kill him. And when that fails, he has to rethink his whole life. I, I thought that was just brilliantly and beautifully done. And again, without spoilers, you do have at one moment a kind of T.S. Eliot murder in the cathedral scene where everything comes to a head. And yet again, the fact that you've got statues, stained glass, candles, rosaries, all of that without it being mocked. <laughs> that in and of itself was an accomplishment, but then to actually make it central to the story, that uh, they really deserve a lot of kudos for that. Well, terrific. Brad Berzer is a professor at Hillsdale College. He is the author of several biographies, including Christopher Dawson, Tolkien, and Russell Kirk. So I uh, thank you so much for being here, Brad, and I uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Likewise. Thanks for everything, Bruce. As always, thank you for listening. To learn more about the Acton Institute and what we do, visit our website at acton.org. If you want to reach our podcast team here at Acton, email us at rfa at acton.org or leave us a message at 888-705-4180 to give us feedback and to let us know what you think of the show. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to swing over to iTunes and leave a review and rating. This episode is produced by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Nathan Moore.